Well, I've told you before that a couple years ago, we went to the Grand Canyon with our kids, and we had an incredible time. And I've talked to some of you about that afterwards. Oh, yeah, we went as well. How many people have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Can I just see? Okay, a good amount. But if you haven't, I would just encourage you, you should really make a way to get there at some point. It was a great time. And, and one of the things you'll see is when you, when you show up, they've got all these signs around telling you all the things to do. They're pointing you to the, the trails over here and the scenic overlook over here. And of course, the gift shop, like they have to get you to the gift shop. That's right at the top of their list. And, and it all looks fantastic. Like, wow, we have finally arrived. We've trekked all the way across the country and here we are at the Grand Canyon. So we get there and, and we start off on one of these trails. And, uh, and it looks great, right? But we, we quickly realize this may not be the best one for our kids. And, and mind you, at this point, they are seven, five, and three when we went there. And so they're pretty little. And, uh, and, and we're going, it's, it's pretty steep going down the hill. There's no guardrails off the edge of the cliff. There's a lot of loose gravel. And like, okay, this, is, this has got a lot of potential for bad here, right? So we go like 100 yards, we stop, we get our pictures, we turn around, we head back. Emily had researched the whole thing and knew like, hey, this is not going to be the, the trail for us to spend all day on, so just a little bit and come back and we'll be all good. Crisis averted, we made it, we had a good time. Right? What we did then is we went down a different path that she had looked up, and this other path was not nearly as well advertised. Right? There's, it's barely on the map at all when they give you this giant unfolding thing that's you know, enormous and you're trying to find, where am I at on this thing? And we, we finally find the trail that we're looking for. And when you get to the trailhead, there's no signage at all. So we're kind of, is this the right place? Is, is this where we're supposed to be? And, and it was, and so we, we went down, and it turns out this was the perfect trail for us. It was mostly flat, almost entirely shaded, and one of the shortest trails in all of Grand Canyon National Park, still with a scenic overlook on the other end of it. Like, boom, this is what we need when the kids are little right here. Right? And, and what I'm telling you this story to communicate and to sort of affirm this principle, you see the title of the uh, sermon on the screen, Consider the Path. What my wife had done a great job of was considering the paths that were available to us at the Grand Canyon. One of them looked great. It was well advertised. Everybody was excited for this trail, but it actually was not going to be the right one to be on. There was another one that was less obvious. It was not clearly marked. You wouldn't have naturally found it but it was absolutely the perfect path for us and it made the whole trip great, right? It kind of reminds me of that principle of, of Proverbs 4, I think it's verse 26, ponder the path of your feet and then all your ways will be sure. Like, look ahead, see what's coming here. Pay attention to that. That's sort of what happened for us there. Now, you might be wondering what Grand Canyon trails and, and Proverbs 4 have to do with Genesis 13. And so let me try and connect those dots a little bit and, and see what that has to say. We're in a sermon series titled Living in the Gap, right? Where there's sometimes a gap between God, what God has promised and what our present circumstances seem to show us, right? These things don't always line up. And we're trying to live by faith, clinging to God's promises, but you're sort of in the gap of like, hey, my circumstances are here. I want to cling to God's promises, but this is difficult living in the gap. How do I do that? How do I live by faith in what God has promised and not by fear of what I'm presently seeing? How do I do that? And what Genesis 13 will show us in Abram and Lot is that part of the way that we live by faith in the gap is by considering the path before us. 
We'll see Abram and Lot do that sometimes well, sometimes not so well. But the idea is you've got to consider the path that you're on. All right, so if, if you're new with this, we, we practice here at Parkside what's called expositional preaching. We're going to go verse by verse, line by line through it, and that uh, we think is really important so that God sets the agenda for what we talk about, and it sort of keeps me off of soapboxes and hobby horses, and uh, so that's, that's the plan here, just walk through Genesis 13 and, and see what it has to say for us. Outline's pretty simple as far as considering the path. We'll see considering the path first of our failure, and then secondly, considering the path of your finances. And third, considering the path of your future. Consider the path of your, your failures, your finances, and your future. So first point, consider the path of your failure. This is verses one through four. Let's read God's word again together. Here's what it says. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So we, we catch Abram here in Genesis 13, what had happened in Genesis 12 is God calls him from his homeland into the wilderness. He takes a step of faith and says, God, I'm going to go where you're telling me to go. I'm going to do what you're telling me to do, and it's scary. But I'm going to try and take this step of faith. And he does. And then a famine hits. He goes down to Egypt. He's tempted. He lies to Pharaoh about who his wife is. He says, she's my sister. And he has a, a, a failure there, a moral failure. He's spiritually lost. And when we pick up the story here in Genesis 13, we see Abram responding to his failure. What's he doing here? The passage shows him retracing his steps. Now, if you look back there at verse 3, you sort of see this retracing lined out. Verse 3 says, And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel. Here, here's where it comes to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. He went back to where he was before, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he'd made an altar at the first. So he's not just retracing his steps. He's going back saying, I'm going on an intentional plan to see where is it that I go and worship the Lord. I've gotten spiritually lost, and I'm returning to my spiritual roots here. Going back to follow God, and I'm responding to my failure in this way. In a sense, you actually get a literal picture in Abram of what repentance is. Right? We say repentance is a change of mind, heart, and behavior. I'm not going to go this way. I'm going to turn and go this way. Abram literally does that. Geographically, he retraces his steps. Just the other day, we were in our house, and uh, our daughter, Rayanne, tends to move around pretty quickly. She's 100 miles an hour all the time. And I looked over, and she was not moving quickly at all. She's going like this. I said, Rayanne, wh what are you doing? This doesn't fit what she's normally doing for us. She says, oh, Dad, I lost one of my beads, so I have to retrace my steps. She knew that she'd lost her way. She'd lost something that was valuable to her, and she had to go back to where it had been. In a spiritual sense, this is what Abram is doing as well. He says, I've lost my way. I'm going to retrace my steps to where I've worshipped the Lord so I can get back to worshipping the Lord again. It's important for us to note this of how we consider the path of our failure because the question isn't if we are going to fail, at some point we will. The question is, how will we respond when we fail? 
Are we going to continue on in our own ways and our own ignorance on the path to more failure? Or will we turn and say, no, I need to get off that path and onto a different path? I think there's a lot of times we don't see material on this side of life. It's like, here's how to stay or to get onto the straight and narrow, but it's sometimes understated what happens when I end up in the ditch. We struggle to know what to do with that. Professor Ian Duguid had commented, I read a, a little book from him this week that talked about this. Here's what he said. He says, there seem to be plenty of books telling you how to be a success, but few write about what to do when you find that you aren't. <laughs> what do we do here? How do we respond to our failures? We see a picture here in Abraham, or in Abram rather. But what happens when this hits us? Because it always does hit us at some point in time. That we, we maybe we stop trusting God to provide a spouse. So I start dating somebody, maybe an unbeliever that I ought not be dating. Or I'm tempted to make compromises with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Because I've stopped trusting God to provide. And I'm going to take things into my own hands. Or maybe, maybe I stop trusting God to provide for my family in other ways. I don't think financially he'll provide. And so I start taking on all kinds of work that I shouldn't that keeps me from being with God's people. It's difficult to trust God in these ways. Maybe you stop trusting God with a difficult boss. He's, he, she is making life so difficult. And so instead of trusting the Lord to work out the situation, I start to leak little bits of gossip that will start to erode their authority and make me look like the one who is right. Like, no, it's, I want it in my timing and in my ways, not in God's timing and in his ways. There's certainly other ways we could look at that. But when we encounter our failures here, where we stop trusting God like we should, what it does, almost always, is it brings identity questions of who we are to the surface. When I recognize my failure and I start to look at it, it brings identity questions to the surface. Because if I'm finding my identity in my performance, then it's gonna lead me down a trail of natural responses that are not going to be good. So when I look back at my failure and I'm seeing it through the lens of my performance, I'm on that path, maybe it's fear that comes out. I'm afraid of the person that I've become or that I might become in the future. And so I'm unable to see what's going on or get off of that path onto a better path because the fear is so gripping. Maybe you're a little bit different and it's not fear that's overwhelming, but it's, it's anger that sets in when I think about my failure. I get angry about what I've done I get angry about what someone has done to me and that becomes consuming because I'm so focused on my own performance that that anger becomes something I can't overcome. Maybe, maybe it's not fear or anger. Maybe it's, it's anxiety. I, I see the ways where I've, I've not measured up, where I failed. And I'm, I'm just gripped with anxiety over, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to get myself turned around and I'm so focused inward, focused on my performance that I'm unable to proceed and get back to that place of worship. What it means then to be on the path of not my own performance, but a path of being on Christ's performance, is that I don't deny my failures. I don't have to pretend like they don't exist, but I can look at them and recognize that they don't define me. Boy, that's so important to see, that being on the path of clinging to Christ's performance instead of my own it doesn't mean that I deny my failures. It merely means they don't define me anymore. Boy, that just, that sounds like a path I'd like to be on where my failures no longer define me. 
how do I get onto that path? It's kind of the question, isn't it? And the only way onto that path is to have a confidence, a confidence that there is forgiveness in confession. See, if I know that someone will forgive me, then I can be open about my failures. If I'm not sure if they'll forgive me, then I'm gonna kind of withhold that a little bit because I'm like, I don't know how you're gonna respond right here. That's why it's important maybe that you claim 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You consider the path I'm on and I think, man, it seems scary to confess these things, but that's actually where there's freedom to walk in Christ and get off of the path of my failures and my sin and back into worshiping the Lord. In fact, all, all of 1 John 1 is talking about walking in the light. And one of the ways that it describes walking in the light in verse seven is an honesty before God and fellow Christians. That's what it means to walk in the light, according to 1 John 1. And so there's a powerful effect of confessing my sin to God and to other Christians that liberates me from it. That's why James 5 says there's healing there. Part of when we say at Parkside, we practice a meaningful membership here. What we mean by this, membership here at Parkside is not merely I've got my name on a membership role or that I, I come on Sunday mornings or I'm on a serving team of sorts, but there's a meaningful connection in the body of Christ such that I can, yes, worship alongside, yes, serve alongside, but have a relationship, a meaningful relationship with brothers and sisters during the week so that when I fail, we're there together to lock arms and get turned back on the right path. We must consider the path of our failures. So yes, it's, it's inevitable that's going to happen at some point, but how will I respond and will I cling to my own performance and what I've done or Christ's and what he's done, which enables me to confess that to him and to others. Right? So if we zoom back out on Abram's story just a little bit, we see him considering his failure in Egypt. He retraces his steps. He comes back, makes an altar, worships the Lord, and it brings him to a second sort of fork in the road, a second set of choices on what are we gonna do with this path, and that brings us to our second point this morning, that we consider the path of your finances. I'm not going to read all of verses 5 through 13 at one time, but we'll break it up a little bit here. Let's start with verses 5 through 7. Here's what it says. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. You see, in the, in the ancient Near East, in that culture, the measure of wealth was your, your herds, your cattle, and, and the tents being involved was likely that there were a lot of servants needed to manage all of their, all their wealth. And there's not enough natural resources to support both Abram and Lot, so they've got to sort of split up. It's causing arguments and strife among their, uh, their, their servants, their employees, however that was sliced up. And it's important to see here in, in this little section What's not being said? It's not saying that having wealth, like Abram and Lot had, having wealth is not the problem. Right? Sometimes we hear 1 Timothy 6.10 misquoted that money is the root of all evil. Like, no, that's not what it says. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
So it's not that wealth is the problem here. Abram actually goes to Egypt as a poor man, and through God's blessing, he leaves with great riches. Right? So it's important that we remember all of the wealth belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us, but it's not wrong for him to entrust it to you. Maybe you heard this little saying that I heard at times growing up, kind of related to money, of, you know, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. Anybody heard that before? A few of you know? Okay, that's not the right approach. Don't do that, right? That's not the idea of what we're after here. But but what we'll see in the Bible is that there's both a, a wealthy sort of righteousness and a wealthy unrighteousness, as well as a poor righteousness and a poor unrighteousness. So it's not the amount of money that you have, it's what you do with what God has entrusted you that, to you that matters. And when it comes to Abram's fork in the road here, what he does is he chooses to make a good choice, a selfless choice. He says, I'm gonna trust God. I'm gonna let Lot make the choice of what's the better land to have, knowing, here's what Abram knew, my wealth can't sustain me. So he said our failures wouldn't define us. He's saying, I know that wealth can't sustain me. It's God who sustains me. So I'm going to give Lot the better choice of which land do you wanna to go to here? And whereas Abram considers the path and says, man, if I pursue wealth above all else, it will be really bad for my soul. Lot makes a poor choice. We see him on the, the other side of that. And the, and the author of Genesis, Moses, goes to great lengths to point out to us along the way how foolish Lot's choice is to prioritize gaining wealth above all else. Look back at verse 10 with me. Here, here's Lot's decision. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You sort of see the foreshadowing in there as well. This was before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. There was great sinfulness there, and you're moving towards the spot that will gain the most wealth, regardless of where it's taking you and who you'll be living with. But it might be helpful to see this on a map to get a little bit better picture of what was going on. So you see up on the screen here, up where Bethel and Ai is boxed in, that is likely the area where Abram and Lot had this little powwow. They're up on top of a mountain there. They can see out the land pretty well. And then the, the next slide has Zoar at the bottom boxed in. So Lot's going in the direction of Zoar. And that's why the passage says he moved to the east. Because you actually could have gone either way to get there around the Dead Sea. He journeys to the east. Now, you remember from five months ago. Okay, you don't remember that. I'll remind you. That's okay. Moving to the east in Genesis often means we're making bad choices. It's often a picture of moving towards wickedness. But we'll also see on, on the next slide here is you see Sodom and Gomorrah both boxed in. And so what's happening is Lot is basically saying the path to the east on this side of the Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley, is where there's going to be more opportunity for my wealth to increase. And that's not a bad thing. But what he doesn't do, he doesn't consider the path of, if I go in this direction, what might it cost me? What are some of the dangers there? And how could this be a problem for my soul? That's why at the very end of, uh, where's that, verse 12, verse 13, 
says he moved his tent as far as Sodom. It's like a kind of a progression. He keeps moving, saying, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna accrue as much wealth as I can regardless of the consequences, regardless of what compromising situations I have to put myself in. What he didn't realize is how much it would actually cost him in the long run. Right? This move likely increased his net worth. He likely assessed the situation rightly in that regard, but he didn't anticipate it costing him his family, his wife, his daughters, and it dearly costing his own soul. The picture we get here is a little bit like the story of a, a frog being in the frying pan, in the kettle, right? They jump in while the water is kind of medium warm, and you slowly, over time, lose track of this thing is actually killing me. That's often the power that money has over us. That I slowly take a step towards I need more, acquiring more, acquiring more, knowing that hot water isn't actually the problem here, but there comes a point where I become blind to money's power over me. One of the the regular messages of the Bible is that we think we have money, but more often than not, money actually has us. It's not us having money and using it, it's money actually has a a crazy kind of control over us. It forces me into certain situations I ought not be in. It keeps me from doing things that I ought to do. A quick sampling, two Old Testament, two New Testament passages here. Proverbs 23, verses four and five says, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. So don't give everything you've got towards wealth. Recognize it has limitations. It can't sustain you. It may be there for a while, but it can also be gone. So instead of not giving everything towards more wealth, Deuteronomy 26 gives a positive picture. Here's what it says. You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. He says, rather than merely not giving everything towards more wealth, here's a better plan. Take the first fruits of what I've given to you, says God, and give it back, gather it together into this place so that God's name can be known in this area. Invest it in eternity, in God's name being known. We jump to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Hear the same, same idea of Proverbs 23 there, the uncertainty of riches? But to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, riches can be deceitful, and I think this is a good foundation. This really gives me life. Paul's saying, no, beware, look out, be rich in good works, be eager to be generous, be ready to share, so that you can have money that God entrusts to you, but so that money doesn't end up having you and tie you down. Or Jesus' words are are pretty simple in Mark 8, 36 that Pastor Casey read and prayed already. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's basically what happened to Lot. 
So Abram did a good job of considering the path of his finances. He says, these can't sustain me, so I'm not going to make it ultimate, but I'm going to recognize it as a good gift. Lot did not do a good job of considering the path of his finances. He says, I'm going to prioritize that above all else. And it took him down a road he did not want to be on, should not have been on. So as we think about applying that to ourselves, I want to think about two groups of people this morning. One group, you say, Justin, I don't yet have the habit of regularly giving from my first fruits, like what Deuteronomy 26 was talking about. And a second group that says, Justin, I have established that as a habit. I think there's maybe different ways we apply this to each group, and, and sometimes it's the same way we apply it to both groups. If you're in the group that says, Justin, I haven't made that a habit to regularly give of the first fruits so that God's name can be known here and around the globe, you're likely thinking something like, Justin, haven't you seen what gas prices are doing recently? Haven't you seen the way inflation is taking off? Don't you see what it costs at, to go to the grocery store? My rent just went up again. Right? I, I, I understand that. I see where we're at there. And I understand that, that a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck, just hoping to make it to the end of the month somewhere near the black, or at least not too deeply into the red. You say, Justin, I would love to be able to give to the work of God here and around the globe, but it just isn't feasible right now. I, I get that desire. Saying, I'd like to be able to do that. Can I, can I encourage you just with a couple of easy steps? The first thing is this. Just confess it to God. Say, God, I would love to be able to give. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. Please help me to see how I could. Simple prayer. And in line with 1 John 1, also share with one brother or sister. Somebody trust, you know really well, I'd love to be able to give, I'm not sure how I can, would you join me in praying that God would help me to see that? And then you pray over a little way that you could make a change. Maybe it's you simply say, hey, once a month we're not gonna go out to McAllister's so that we can give $20 this month. You take a little step towards saying, I want this to be part of my life. I don't want money to have me. I want to steward what God has given me well. But there's other aspects where we should also pray over a bigger step to take. Sometimes we've made too many commitments financially where we're living at or above our means, and that keeps us from being generous like we'd like to. I had a friend uh, this past year, lives in a different state, who, who said basically this. He said, you know what? I bought more house than I need, and I need to, to sell my house because this mortgage payment, it's a good gift to have this house, but I don't need this much, and it's keeping me from being generous. He didn't go homeless. He didn't put his family out on the street, but he said, you know what? We need to rethink not just the smaller decisions, but the bigger decisions so that I will consider the path of my finances, and is this leading me to worship God in every area of my life? Now, I don't know what that's going to look like for you, so that's why I'm cautious to put a specific, you need to go and do this, but I do know that if you'll honestly pray, God, I'd like to be generous with what you've entrusted to me. I'm not sure how that's possible. Please show me how. You pray that prayer, he will reveal it to you. If you'd like some help on how you can navigate that, we've got pastors and counselors here at the church who are happy to uh, help walk through financial planning and people who work in that industry of financial planning to uh, make some good plans. Right? That's all talking to the, the group who says, I haven't made this a habit of regular giving. But it's important that we speak also to those of you who say, Justin, giving is a regular habit in our life. We do give of the first fruits. 
And it's important that you hear this, that money is still a major threat to your soul. Because regular giving can deceive you into thinking that money doesn't have you. This is sort of the story of Mark 12, where there's the widow who gives two mites, and there's people coming in that give huge sums of money, and Jesus says they gave out of their abundance, and it wasn't actually that sacrificial. They feel good about themselves. They're regularly giving, but money still has them. So if that's you, and you're saying, Justin, I have made this a habit, this is a regular part of my life, then actually the action point is remarkably similar. You say, I'm gonna confess to God. God, I recognize the dangers of money. I don't want money to have me. I want money to be something I can steward for your kingdom. Would you help me to see where money might have control of me? You ask him to do that. I know that he will. And you confess to one or two friends, close friends. Say, man, would you guys join me in prayer? I don't want money to be an idol in my life. I recognize money's a good gift and a terrible God. I don't want money to be my God. Would you pray for me that money wouldn't become God in my life? As you pray together, the Lord will work. And then you ask God, what would it look like for me to give sacrificially? God, help me to see what would it look like for me to give sacrificially? And I trust that if you'll ask the Lord to reveal those things, he will guide you. You don't need me to stand and say, you need to give this many dollars or give on this frequency or anything like that. Like, Like the Spirit of God will do a work in your heart. But I'll tell you this, wherever you're at in the conversation here around money, involve your whole family in it. Like dads, you've got to take ownership here. Involve your kids. Talk to them about what it looks like to lead a generous life so that you're not only considering the path for yourself, but you're considering the path for your kids and for their kids and for generations to come. You've got to, so so yes, you talk about it, but wherever you're investing in your church or in missionaries or in other ministries, take time to pray over those together. Like kids, we're gonna, we're gonna give money towards this and we're gonna pray over it together and involve your kids in ways that you can be sacrificial. Like guys, we're not gonna go out for pizza tonight because we'd actually think it's a better investment that we give some money towards these missionaries and let them be part of that and see, like, you know what? There's actually something better than my favorite pizza tonight. Doesn't mean you have to deprive your kids. You can never have pizza. Like, I'm not saying anything like that. But involve your kids in it so that you not only consider the path for your life, but for theirs as well. That's the second point here. We consider the path of your finances. Consider the path of your failure first. Consider the path of your finances second. And thirdly, consider the path of your future. Consider the path of your future. Verses 14 through 18. Look back at your copy of God's word. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm gonna pause you. We'll go over there in just a second. Context for verses 14 to 18, I think this is important to see. It's almost like God looks down at Abram and he sees you've just walked through two really difficult challenges. But you think about, I mean, it's quite a sermon in one morning to talk about our failures and our finances back to back. It's a pretty big swing, right? It's what Genesis 13 gives us and so we're not gonna duck from it. But if you're Abram, you're walking through like, These are two of the most difficult challenges we'll ever face in our life. How to deal with my failures, how do I honor God in my finances? And God sees it. Abram is trying to live by faith in the gap. And it's difficult, but he's trying. He says, look, here's what I'm gonna do, Abram. I'm gonna come alongside, I'm gonna see where you're at, 
and I'm gonna give you a word of encouragement for my promises that will strengthen you and sustain you so you can keep living by faith. So that your failures won't define you and you can recognize that your wealth won't sustain you. Here's how God speaks that in verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Like I said, God sees Abram trying to live in the gap. How do I deal with my failures? How do I deal with my finances? This is difficult. And so God reminds him of his promises, and he invites him to take a walk and to see the promises. Go out in the land, experience these promises. See what this land is like that I'm going to give to you. Take my promises seriously, in a sense, is what God is saying to Abram. And it's important we recognize Abram actually wouldn't receive this land in his lifetime. Right? He died waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. But as he considered the promises of God and went for this walk and, and sort of reflected on them, he's reminded of the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God. It says, when I see the promise of what you're going to do in the future, it strengthens me to live right now in the present. It strengthens me to live by faith and not merely by sight. Hebrews 11 would tell us that Abram was longing, he was longing for a better country. You know when you long for something? Oh, I can't wait to be there. He was longing for this better country, the future that was promised by God. And he had opportunity to look back is what Hebrews 11 says. Man, if they wanted to go back to the old way, they could have, except they were longing for something better, these promises of God. So the, the message for us this, this morning in seeing this section is that we learn to dwell long on the promises of God. We learn to long for what's coming in the future, when we'll be in eternity. And as we think on the promises of God, not merely to dwell on them, but to worship in the midst of that. What did Abram do as he went out and took a walk and remembered the faithfulness of God? There he built an altar to the Lord. I worship as I remember what he's doing, all the while I'm still kind of in this gap. His promises are here, my circumstances are here, it's difficult, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a conscious choice to worship the Lord even as I'm trying to take that step of faith and it's really difficult. So if we, we pull it sort of full circle here, you think about the promises of God that strengthen you through your failures. How do I worship in the midst of that? Isaiah 61.10. Jot it down if you're taking notes. Here's what it says. My soul will exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. I'm gonna clothe myself and remember that I am clothed in Christ's righteousness, the garments of salvation, not my own failures. I can acknowledge them, they no longer define me. How do I consider the path not only of my failures, but my finances in light of the promises of God? 
Go back to Luke 12, verse 33. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure that the, uh, in the heavens that doesn't fail. Now, don't do that where no thief approaches, where no moth destroys, a foundation that's truly secure. I claim that promise of God. God, help me to see where I'm investing in money bags that do grow old. I recognize that money can't sustain me. It is a good gift, but it's not a good God. What it means is that I recognize that what's coming up forward is better than what's right here, right now. And then there's an aspect of this where at some point we recognize I feel more defined by my failures than I do by Christ's performance, where I feel like I lean more on money than I ought to, and how do I make myself clean? Like how do I get over those things, right? Hey, woman, well, I need to go see a counselor, and counselors can be really helpful. but they're not able to actually change you from the inside out. And you might need to go see a, a financial planner, a consultant, and they could be really helpful. But they also can't change you from the inside out. Right, the, um, I, I'll tell you this story and I'll close with this. Um, when I was in college, I worked at a camp up in Canada. If you're at all familiar with Canadian geography, it was five hours due north from Montreal. It was pretty far up there. And uh, it was... It was a, a beautiful camp off the grid. It was one of those camps where it's like you're so far off the grid, they kind of have food and kind of have running water, but not exactly. And you take a shower and it's like, I don't know that that actually helped things here. Um, they had these volleyball courts out by the lake. And so we'd spend a lot of the day out playing volleyball and it was a blast. But by the end of the day, you're just covered in sand and mud and grime. And you're, I mean, it was super fun, but you're also kind of in the back of your mind like, boy, I know what that shower is going to be like tonight, and I don't know that I'm actually going to feel a whole lot better going to bed, and I don't like laying on that mattress with the, the sand being all grimy there. So, so one of the things they told us is they said, look, you'll be amazed how much cleaner you'll be if you'll just dive into the lake. Well, the thing about being that far north is that water is really, really cold. It'll shock your system. And I didn't really, so what I had done before is I kind of like waded into the water and it comes up on your ankles. You're like, oh my goodness, I cannot do that. Right, you've, you've done that before. They said, no, no, no. You got to go out to the pier. You got to jump off and get fully plunged in. And what happens is you, you go down in and you hit that water. It's so cold, so refreshing. And it's actually going to clean you better than any of the showers here can. So I took their word for it. And we did and jumped in and it was shocking and refreshing and we came out like, wow, I am so much cleaner than I was from that shower last night. I found a, something way greater than the power of that shower to clean me up. Right? In a sense, what you may need to do this morning is to recognize that my heart is gripped by my failures, or maybe it's gripped by finances, more than I want it to be, and I need to cling to the promises of God that Jesus' perfect life, I'm gonna plunge myself in the gospel is what I'm saying, I'm gonna to cling to his perfect performance instead of to my failures. And I'm gonna to cling to the fact that what he promises to come in the future because of his resurrection from the dead is better than anything that money can give me. I'm gonna plunge myself into that reality. That's the actual power to change in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that I consider the path. I'm no longer clinging to what I can do, but what he's done. I can walk in faith while we're here in the gap. Let's pray.